Welcome to The Feast, a podcast where meals make history. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. Now, you've probably noticed that food trucks have been having a bit of a moment over the last few years. When I was a kid, the only food you could reliably get out of a truck was maybe an ice cream, maybe some fries or a hot dog at a state fair. But offerings were pretty limited, and the food trucks, at least in my area, never really seemed to stray too far from either cold treats or fast-fried food. Now, in 2019, of course, that's all changed. We're now living in a world where the Food Network can offer multiple seasons of a show called The Great Food Truck Race. MSN has a regularly updated list of the best food trucks in America. And on that list, you can find anything and everything out of a truck. From handmade Salvadorian pupusas aboard the Olomega truck in New York City, or in Portland, Oregon's Bing Mi food truck, which serves northern Chinese savory crepes. Food trucks have become a go-to way for chefs or foodie entrepreneurs to try out their skills and ideas on a small scale. And often, we're talking extremely small, maybe about 16 square feet, and that's if you're lucky. But what if a food truck wasn't looking to serve you the next food trend of 2019, but the hot food trend of 1959 or 1871? And what if, rather than a chef preparing your food in the back of the truck, you, the customer, was invited on board and asked to cook a favorite or iconic meal, a recipe that meant something to you. And what if, instead of chefs at the helm of this food truck, you had historians behind the wheel? Well, turns out, if you were to head to Manitoba, Canada, that's exactly what you would find. The Manitoba Food History Project, in association with the University of Winnipeg, runs, essentially, a mobile food history archive, taking to the road to discover what food and recipes have meant to communities all over the province. Today, we're talking with two of the researchers behind this food history project, Dr. Janice Thiessen and Kent Davies. We'll chat about the intricacies of running your own food truck, especially in central Canada, and especially during the winter months. We'll also talk about how the project got started, what inspired Janice, Kent, and their co-collaborator, Kimberly Moore, to dig into the history of Manitoba food. Now, if you're not from Canada, here's a crash course. Manitoba is a big province, right smack dab in the middle of the country. The south is filled with vast prairies, full of cattle and grain. To the north, you've got Hudson Bay, not to mention more than 110,000 lakes. Now, if you're from the U.S., Manitoba is that province that hovers just above North Dakota and Minnesota, which means, among other things, it gets cold in Manitoba. Real cold. Northern Manitoba is considered to have a subarctic climate, getting down to negative 40 degrees in the winter. And that's negative 40 Celsius and Fahrenheit. Because apparently when you get that cold, 
even the metric and imperial systems agree. But let's forget the weather for the moment and focus on food. The Food History Project hopes to explore historical recipes throughout Manitoba, using their custom-built food truck to make some of these dishes on the go. And as it moves through the province, Janice, Kent, and the other researchers on the truck will have a chance to chat with some of the numerous communities that live in Manitoba and talk about the food that has meaning to them, whether that community has been there for one year, a hundred years, or 5,000. And at its heart, the project asks two basic questions. How has food been produced, sold, and consumed in Manitoba? And naturally, how has this changed over time? I asked both Janice and Kent what got them interested in food history to begin with. How did this whole historical food truck idea start? I'm Janice Thiessen. I'm a professor of history at the University of Winnipeg and the lead on the Manitoba Food History Project. And I'm Kent Davies. I'm adjunct professor here at the University of Winnipeg and collaborator of the Manitoba Food History Project. And I'm also the podcast producer. Oh, what got me interested in food history, I did not realize it was a thing until I was doing it, actually. I study business history and labor history. I'm particularly interested in businesses that are smaller and independent and was uh, looking for some such businesses to research and started uh, a, a project on independent Canadian snack food manufacturers. Tuned into a book called Snacks, a Canadian Food History. In the course of doing that research, discovered food history was actually a field with its own uh, literature. And once uh, that was completed, was looking for another project. Um, the Oral History Centre basically consists of the other two researchers here with me on the uh, Manitoba Food History Project, Kimberly Moore and Ken Davies, had been instrumental for the Snacks Project because they are the ones who brought me up to speed on technology and provided advice with respect to recording and uh, proper archiving of materials. And then also they managed the archive here where the interviews from that project were eventually deposited. And so uh, I just really enjoyed working with both of them and wanted to continue that relationship. Uh, but also found food history to be fascinating and was looking for another project. And so the three of us kind of just, over the course of a summer, were batting around ideas and came up with a, a very broad project where we wanted basically to use food as an entry point into pretty much every aspect of history imaginable. Food would be a touch point that non-academics relate to and then learn some history that they, that they otherwise might not engage with. And uh, in the course of planning that project together, uh, Kent and Kim and I came up with, we, we just started suggesting, you know, what would be the dream? If we could convince someone to support us, what all might we want to try? What sorts of things could we do to both to stretch ourselves as researchers, but also to really engage with folks other than just the traditional attenders of public lectures and readers of journal articles. And so from that, we got a variety of methods for this uh, Manitoba Food History Project. 
Ken, it sounds like your background is in oral history. It did were you a, a latecomer to the food history game, or were you already heavy into researching food? I'm also a latecomer to oral history, though. My background's in broadcasting, but I, I've been here at the Oral History Center since 2012, and that's kind of where I got my you know background. Then I started taking courses in history, and what struck me was it was a really amazing way in to political and social and. <laughs> And they had all these dynamics that I didn't really consider. On a public scale, it connected in a lot of different ways that I had considered. And it was, uh, I just really, I felt, I was fascinated with it. (laughs) Just for folks that might not know what defines oral history, um, maybe, I know it might be a tricky question to kind of narrow it down, but maybe just a, a brief description of what oral history maybe includes uh, oral history is a, a method and uh, a movement. It provides the ability for those who uh, don't necessarily leave the kinds of records that have historically been uh, of greatest interest to historians, uh, the opportunity to share their histories. Even, when it co- even though there's been a, a movement towards social history for many decades now, the focus still has too often been on, on documentary evidence as the, the real and the true. And those are always records that are maintained by those who have the power to actually produce and control that narrative. So oral history gets us, uh, gives us an opportunity to share the stories of those who, who are excluded from those records or whose voices are distorted in those records. Uh, but oral history um, is also a way of respecting the fact that most of human history hasn't been recorded in writing, uh, and that those stories are uh, meaningful as well. And that was a, a fantastic description because I think it touches on what, when I first heard about the project, I found such a, an innovative and inspiring take on food history because I think when a lot of folks maybe think of food history, you do think of those documentary sources. You think of recipe books, you think of recipes themselves, cookbooks, um, a lot of written sources. But I think that oral history component that the project focuses on is a really important way of chronicling not just a recipe as a collection of measurements um, and procedures, but how these recipes are actually living items in a way and go towards both families, communities, um, on a much more vibrant scale. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk about how you envision the project, specifically of food history, um, to, to really draw on those elements of oral history that you were just mentioning. We're not interested in documenting well, I mean, obviously we are documenting facts, but the prime interest is in the meaning that those facts have for people. So we're, we're not interested in a food history that tries to uh, find, you know, the original recipe for a particular food item or what is the most authentic. Those are all kind of pointless questions because, you know, even if you knew the answers to them, what have you gained? So rather it's a matter of... Um, what does this particular food mean for you? Or how does food uh, allow us to better understand broader processes like you know, political history or migration history or labor history? I would love to know maybe then, as you were defining the project, you know, it is the Manitoba Food History Project. So maybe you could talk a little bit about either what 
what defines maybe or what has been done um, regarding the food history of Manitoba or maybe speaks to some of those themes that you were just mentioning of Manitoba vis-a-vis kind of business history, social history, political history that you really wanted to dig into with this project? We're the beginning of Western Canada. There's some interesting and troubling historical events regarding the interactions of the state with indigenous populations here and with settler populations and that on an ongoing basis, not merely at the point of Manitoba joining Confederation. And now, a short overview of Canadian history, brought to you by The Feast. Canadian Confederation refers to 1867 which is the date more or less considered the start of Canada as a more or less cohesive country. Basically, when lots of the British colonies up here in the north, that is, what became Ontario, Quebec, and a few of the others, got together and decided they were going to be considered a unit, what at the time was called the Dominion of Canada. Now remember... They were still colonies under the British Empire, but from then on, after 1867, Canada was to be considered whole, rather than various colonies acting independently of each other. Now, the province of Manitoba was actually a bit late to the whole confederation thing. The province wasn't formally created until 1870. And when it was, it was about an 18th the size the province is today. It was actually called the Postage Stamp Province because it was so small. But over time, Manitoba grew and grew and grew, eventually attracting enough people that Winnipeg, its capital city, became the third largest city in Canada, by the early 1900s at least. Anyway, this moment of Canadian history, complete. Back to Janice. Uh, And so some of that, I think, is uh, what we're interested in. There's a tremendously diverse population here in terms of the variety of backgrounds. I mean, I I remember Globe and Mail made a big deal about Jollibee coming to Toronto, and I don't recall that they made quite as big a uh, deal about the fact that, yeah, Jollibee came to Winnipeg of all the places in Canada first because we have a significant Filipino-Filipina Population. Sorry to butt in again so soon, but a quick primer on Jollibee in case you missed the bandwagon. Jollibee is a fast food company that started out in the Philippines and made waves with a menu featuring fried chicken, spaghetti, and handheld mango pies. In 2018, the chain opened its first stores in Mississauga in Scarborough, just outside Toronto. And, well, as City News reported, people went a little crazy for it. Jollibee is a thing of legend in the Philippines, where it was founded 40 years ago. It's as ubiquitous there as Tim Hortons or McDonald's is here. When it opened its first GTA store on April 1st, Jollibee fans camped out for two days to be the first in, and the lineups haven't let up yet. But as it turned out, Toronto wasn't even the first city in Canada to enjoy Jollibee chicken. Locations in Winnipeg had been open a full two years before the chain's debut in Toronto in 2018. And so, yeah, there's there's, there's so many different um, cultural groups here and being able to uh, understand 
some of their culture, I think, is an aspect of the project that attracts us. We don't know what we're going to find because we're interviewing people and then we're doing all the secondary research in order to produce podcasts and maps. And, and But what I like about some of these interviews and some of these small businesses and others that we uh, talk to um, within the project is a lot of their stories are kind of a microcosm. Other things that are going on across the country. And how like some of their businesses like uh, recently did something on the craft brewing industry and basically what's happening in Manitoba might be delayed by 20 years, maybe in BC or things like that, where different changes to the economic environment, the social environment, how people are consuming, but also in a way that's a little more nuanced because we have all this research <laughs> across mm-hmm. Canada. Yeah. So it, it's it's a really interesting way on how to see how, you know, food trend like how food trends go, how it affects society, where you know, what what's the cultural and, and consumer significance to some of the things that happen. That's just one thing, but like when you start with a small picture and then do the secondary research, you get kind of a bigger picture across Canada. And because these are kind of focused interviews on maybe one individual business or one individual life story, you can see how that can tap into a national story starting with a individual. Yeah, I think Kent's got at the heart of it there. We're, we're driven by first the interviews and the research comes after that. I mean, to a large extent comes after that because we don't know what we're going to get with the interview. And so I think of... Uh, some of the interviews that our uh, students in the courses that uh, I teach have done, uh, some of which have become podcasts or story maps. So there's one in particular that I want to mention, and that's um, Burger Town. It's mm-hmm. episode two of Preserves, our podcast series. And it's a, an interview that a student did with two owners uh, here in Winnipeg of Greek chili burger joints. Mm-hmm. which is kind of a northern Ontario, Manitoba phenomenon. It's uh, burgers and hot dogs, but with a very distinctive kind of chili on top. And, you know, mm-hmm. when, this individ- when this student proposed doing this, it's like, yes, of course, it's a, it's a Winnipeg icon. But, like, what are you going to get? We don't know. What ended ha- up happening, though, is that these individuals that he interviewed talk about the, the challenges of running a small business as an independent business owner, but the twist is you know, uh, how it how hard that becomes if you are a migrant from a particular cultural group that banks are not trusting to provide loans to, and how you have to then find alternative means within your migrant community to try and raise the capital and share the knowledge and the skills to be able to operate businesses. And so you then, as a result of just you know an interview with two small business owners about something seemingly as meaningless or trivial, except for those of us who eat oh, it, <laughs> as a Greek chili burger, you end up getting insights into small business operation in Canada, networks, business networks within migrant communities. And I think those are very important stories to tell and ones that tend to get neglected if what you're doing is traditional business research where you're relying on the archives of a business, which then means you're automatically going to be studying either medium or large size businesses or crown corporations. And I'd love to know more about maybe the process by which you're doing the interviews. Um, you mentioned that um, many of your students are doing interviews, but what 
um, was perhaps a framework that you set out when you were writing the grant of, of where were you going to focus um, as far as your subjects or, or would-be subjects or perhaps types of food industries or, or home cooks. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about that, about who was going to be interviewed and who was going to be doing the interviewing. Well, the challenge with oral history is always you have to have folks who are willing to be interviewed. Uh, I guess our focus is from the, from a business standpoint, those that are most significant in terms of having been around for a long time or being uh, somewhat unique. And, and again, my, I, my preference is to focus on independently owned businesses rather than ones where you end up actually just studying mm-hmm. uh, some larger multinational. And then also home cooks, folks who are producing in the home one way or the other. And that was where the food truck came in. But the, the, the approach is very much that while well, we have a set of guiding questions, we let the interviewee tell us what they want to tell us. Because it's uh, province-wide, I suppose, the focus being the Manitoba Project, is there a moving focus that you're hoping to do most of the interviews first in Winnipeg and then move to other communities? Or is it, as you were saying, anyone who is, is happy and willing to talk, um, no matter where they come from in the province, you're, you're happy to listen at this point in time? Well, it's a really big province. We're based in, the three of us are based in Winnipeg. So the Winnipeg interviews we can do at any point in time. Last summer was our first uh, venture out with the truck, and we went to Steinbach because I had spent some time living there in the past and had a little familiarity with the community, in part because it's not a far drive from Winnipeg, so for the first test run of the truck, it wouldn't be that big a, a deal to have to haul it back to the city for repair. From the beginning, we, when we were planning this, we were very sure that what we didn't want to do was what too often happens, where you say you're going to do a provincial study and you study the capital city. So we, we have intentions of not with a truck because it's diesel and winter is a challenge and it's mm-hmm. a really far way to go, but we, will, we plan to go as far north as Churchill. And that's north, really north, Hudson Bay north. Let's put it this way. You might have heard of Churchill, Manitoba. It's also known as the polar bear capital of the world. All across uh, eastern, western, southern Manitoba as well. We did some work in southern Manitoba last summer. We'll do some there again this summer, but we also will be going to uh, the midwestern portion of the province. Now, I, I have to ask about, I'm, I'm going to call it the legendary truck, because as soon as I saw pictures of this, I thought this was just fantastic as, uh, as part of the project. And I was just wondering maybe if you could tell me the, the origin story, the trials and travails of acquiring, modifying, and then getting this truck out on the road. We are super grateful to the University of Winnipeg Research Office. Uh, this project would not have happened without them. And we're also very grateful to the Social Sciences and Humanities Research of Council of Canada, who are the grant providers for this project. But both of those entities provi- have provided funding, and the U of W Research Office has provided a lot of assistance and advice. This project, we're very lucky in that um, our vice president of research has a background in the food industry. And so when we uh, said, well, let's get a food truck, because how hard could that be, right? Uh, He very kindly informed us of some of the challenges and suggested that we we look for a truck on Kijiji. And I got to tell you, the paperwork of trying to explain to you know, financial services that your provider is not someone, uh, it's just some dude on Kijiji. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little 
bit of a challenge trying to get a check. Yeah. But uh, we are thankful for their their support there, and that's what what we ended up doing is we bought a, a truck. It's a former FedEx truck that a gentleman in southern Manitoba had refurbished in Ontario for use as a food truck. His partner in the business, uh, it turned out, really hated running a food truck, operated it for three days, and then put it up for sale. Uh, and so we were fortunate enough to get it. It's required some repairs and some retrofitting and actually is sitting in a shop right now getting some of that done so that we can get permitted. We don't need a permit in order to do our research because we are neither selling nor even giving away this food that we produce on the truck. But the truck is shared with uh, another group I want to mention who's been super helpful. The truck is shared by Diversity Foods. They are the food service providers here at the University of Winnipeg campus. And we're, again, super lucky to have them here because they too have chipped in considerably financially and very much so with advice and expertise. Uh, A lot of university campuses have one of these multinational entities like Sodexo or Aramark. Right, which are problematic for a lot of reasons. But this is a, a separate corporation. It's a social enterprise. They are very interested. Ian Vickers, the head of it, is very interested in uh, experimentation and local, sustainable food practices. And so they uh, have provided a lot of help with the getting this up and running. And so that's why a group of historians are capable of actually cooking on board mm-hmm. and recording on board a, a food truck without killing themselves and others. <laughs> so I'd love to know what what is the equipment you have both recording and cooking on board? You're you're asking a lot a lot of this truck. You know, the first thing I realized after like to our astonishment that we would be getting a food truck. <laughs> yes. Uh, my mind, you know, as an audio technician quickly went to oh boy, that's going to sound awful. Um, there's going to be so much background noise and low end noise. It's just going to be, you know, can't, won't be able to hear it. Uh, luckily I found some, um, new field recording lapel mics, uh, that Zoom put out They're They're for mobile setups. So, uh, you can walk around with these very small packs and it, uh, the lapel fits right on our apron and it also makes it so it's hands-free so they can walk around. So, so far that has worked really remarkably well. You know, uh, either they cook on the food truck or if we're doing a tour of the restaurant, they can walk around, they can introduce the people and the noise isn't so bad that, you know, you'll want to turn it off. One thing that we really wanted to do, it's one of the things we're focusing on here at the Oral History Center is to do more uh, recording interviews and actualities outside the studio. We do have a sound studio to do interviews here, but like, we like kind of going to, into communities and having flexibility to do uh, setups in the field or where people are most comfortable. And I thought that was important to make sure that we had the tools to, to make that happen. And so far, it's you know been remarkably successful. And It's been great. I, I, my assumption from the beginning of the project was that the, operating the truck would be always at least a two-person job in terms of running the mechanics of the cooking equipment and and then another person to look after the recording and then possibly even a third person to do the photography. And what we've found with uh, our test run of the truck for three weeks, the Mennonite Heritage Village in Steinbach this past summer is that um, thanks to Kent's decision-making with respect to recording and thanks to uh, advice from diversity, it's really a one-person job. 
Uh, so that it means just for that, the interview process. For the interview <laughs> process, yes. Sorry, <laughs> yes. To be clear, yeah. uh, that recording an interview, you, you can because you have these hands-free mics, you can take photos and you can wander around the truck while the person is cooking, and it, it's tremendously effective. It's really been great. And as far as uh, being able to cook on the truck, what kinds of equipment do you have um, for for making food on on board? Well, we have deep fryers, but we don't use them. <laughs> They're really commercial, right? They take a lot of oil, so for the, the purposes of, of our research, it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. uh, from a safety standpoint or from an environmental standpoint to fire up a deep fryer. So we make a use instead of uh, a flat top and a couple of uh, burners. Uh, there's a propane stove in there, a uh, refrigerator, cutting boards, of course. Uh, and so anything that you would do in your home kitchen, with the exception of baking, and it's been great that way because while occasionally folks do prefer that you interview them in their home, uh, this really gives uh, both the interviewer and the interviewee a safe, semi-public space in which you can cook a sample of something meaningful to you while you, your life story is being recorded. Once you know the parameters of what you can cook, it kind of limits the time, <laughs> how, you know, the prep time and, the and you know, because again, we, we still want that bulk interview we still want to you know interview before and after the the uh, the cooking we still want to have enough time on that if the rest of, if we had all the things on the food truck then somebody's going to go all out with the recipe and they might eat into the time where we really want to get down uh, to know them and their life story and how their food you know fits into their lives and and what it means for a, a you know a wider context. Yeah. So the the process is that we encourage we do some advertising, but we we encourage folks to go on our website manitobafoodhistory.ca and fill out a form that explains what they might want to cook on the truck and why they want to cook that. So uh, and we emphasize very much this is not supposed to be a full meal. You're just making yeah. a little sample. Right. And uh, also, it, we're not looking for chefs, although we're not, not looking for chefs. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not asking for people to write to produce anything fancy or even necessarily something tasty. We just want something that they find meaningful. And then part of the interview is about what exactly is that meaning? And that's what the value of oral history is, really, is to, to try and uncover the meaning behind why we choose to remember things the way we do or what it is that we choose to remember. And I'd love to know, you know, maybe some of the specific things that have been cooked on the truck. Maybe uh, you mentioned last summer the trip to Steinbeck with a Mennonite community. Were they were they cooking on the truck as well? Well, it uh, originated as a Mennonite community prior to it being, of course, indigenous lands. But it has evolved uh, dramatically uh, since that that late 19th century uh, creation of it. And so there's a, a very large French community, a large German community, and a number of other uh, ethnic groups there. So it is not it's not uh, just a Mennonite community anymore. But we were at the Mennonite Heritage Village Museum there because uh, they kindly provided us a, a spot to park the truck. We had just a, a variety of, of things. We had someone come and produce puffed wheat squares. Now, if you're not from Manitoba or Saskatchewan, you may not be familiar with these regional and beloved sweet treats. Using puffed wheat cereal, which looks kind of like rice cereal, aka Rice Krispies, plus a healthy dose of sugar, butter, maybe a little cocoa and corn syrup as well, home cooks shape the cereal into individual bars or even into a cake. 
And depending on where you're from, these little no-bake delights are a favorite family dessert or a snack after school, often going by the name puffed wheat cake, or as Janice referred to them, puffed wheat squares. But this regional recipe has faced some tough times recently. The last Canadian manufacturer of puffed wheat cereal closed a few years ago, which means any puffed wheat cereal now mostly comes up from the U.S. Even worse, there was an actual shortage in grocery stores of puffed wheat a few years ago, causing panic in home cooks as to where to find the central ingredient for this prairie staple. Don't worry, the shortage is over. But it did cause enough of a stir that the CBC did an entire news story about it, including, of course, a recipe. We'll put a link to that recipe on our website at thefeastpodcast.org, so you can try a sweet piece of this Canadian tradition. This was a, a gentleman who wanted to make that because it's something that he had always made for his children. And now that they are adults and have moved away from the province, he still makes it and then cuts it into portions and vacuum seals it and ships it to them. So here's, here's a great example of the kind of thing we want to get at, but we don't know what it is till it happens. You know, he wants to come and make puff wheat squares and you think, well, that's like, <laughs> thank you. And, and we'd love to have that. But also, I'm not sure what that's going to result in. Yeah. And what it resulted in was this amazing story where he's talking. It's basically a gender history. He's talking about having made these for his children uh, when they were young, but living in a particular community, which at that time, at least, thought that a man cooking for her children was weird. And talked about how grocery shopping with his young children, because his wife was working, but gro grocery shopping with his young children resulted in stares and awkward conversations. And how that impacted him enough that it, it made him question his masculinity. And that was something he had to work through over time. And so you have this amazing insight into uh, a topic that I would not have put together with Puffweed Squares when, and did not when he proposed it. But, you know, someone as a result, someone who may not have an interest in questions of the historical construction of masculinity, they don't they would never pick up a journal article where that's in the, you know, in the subtitle. They might listen mm -hmm. to a podcast episode about puff wheat squares, yeah. where incidentally, that's something that they learn along the way. That's really what we want to, to do very much with this project is bring history to folks who don't realize that they actually want to know some more history. And it sounds like you had quite um, a number of events, obviously quite a number of interviews. When did you actually start formally the project? But when was the kind of official launch of either the food truck or the or the first interview? I think I think it was like, you know, we got the grant and uh, now we're going to get working. That was about it. Uh, yeah, there was three days of I can't yeah. believe they gave us the grant. <laughs> yeah. And then we're like, well, we got to find a food truck first. And Janice, there was a lot of work on that end um still working <laughs> yes yes we saw some really ugly food trucks oh yeah yeah we are very fortunate to have secured the one we did <laughs> yeah it looks gorgeous but i think we're all been kind of in some ways been working on this project even before it officially started either with you know janice's research with her in our classroom or her own personal research with snacks books and all the other things beforehand those interviews and those collections inform what we're doing now even with some of the ideas 
are uh, don't originate with us or this project. Yeah. So the the reason we have a food truck is uh, Alex Freud, Nolan Riley, who originated the Oral History Center here at the University of Winnipeg, had uh, bounced around the idea of maybe we should get a food truck. And so when uh, <laughs> we were planning this grant. Alex says to us, maybe you should get a food truck. And we're like, yeah, we're not getting this grant anyway. And we're just kind of dreaming yeah, about what's all possible. On this. Exactly. <laughs> swing for the fences. Let's, let's say we'll get a food truck and figure that out later. Yeah. And uh, it's been uh, it's been super productive. It's been uh, really an amazing thing. Yeah. I'd love to know what is in store for 2019. You you mentioned that the truck is currently, I think, uh, bedded down for the winter. But when when are plans to uh, maybe get it out on the road again? The winter has to let us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it is actually not bedded down for the winter. The, it is the uh, winter bedded it down itself. It's, yeah, it's uh, it's sitting at a, a shop right now, having its gas lines ripped out and reinstalled. Not that there's anything wrong with them, just the the uh, vagaries of different codes and how they're interpreted by different health inspectors. As I say, we don't need a permit, but because we're sharing this truck with diversity who are using it in a normal food trucky kind of way, mm-hmm. they do need a permit for their end of things. So it's, yeah, it's sitting there. But I mean, what I like about, uh, and I talked about how we, we wanted to stretch ourselves and it's, it's stressing, stretching ourselves intellectually. It's stretching ourselves in terms of what Kent just mentioned, making connections with uh, other groups, other entities, other people that we otherwise hadn't been networking with. Mm-hmm. It's also stretching us in, in developing practical skills that I never thought I would need as an historian. So like two weeks ago, Ian Vickers, the head of diversity, Kimberly Moore and myself are uh, attempting to install batteries back into this diesel truck, taking turns because I keep arcing the <laughs> the battery and shocking myself and screaming. So, but uh, it, it's it's been uh, it's been bizarre that way. It's not what I would have expected. I mean, it's one thing to fill out a grant application and say yes, let's have a truck and let's conduct interviews there, and it will be this safe space and draw attention and make it easier to secure interviews. Uh, but it's another to actually run it. Uh, and I think if I'd known in advance <laughs> that how much paperwork, how much documentation, how much communication with workplace safety and health and, and Manitoba health and you know all I, I don't know that I would have been up for it. Mm-hmm. But uh, to have the assistance of you know collaborators like Kent and Kim of diversity of the research office here has made it possible and enjoyable and uh, amazing. I've done, interviews with small business owners, managers, and workers for 20 years now. But it has never been as easy a process as this year to secure interest on the part of individuals. And uh, part of it is because the truck attracts attention. And even though um, most of our interviews, in fact, are not happening on the truck, because folks have heard of it or have uh, look it up afterwards and see, oh yeah, this is a, you know, now I know finally who these people are and what they're doing. (laughs) It's just been a a better experience in terms of um, making those kinds of contacts. I was just thinking if folks are looking, I know you did a bunch of events and a diverse range of events um, in 2018. Um, Are there similar events, festivals, um, markets that you're hoping to pop up at for 2019? Yes, we have some secured, some where we have made the request and haven't yet heard. And then, of course, we're always open to offers, which we do, which we got last year. Some of that happened. So yeah. uh, in terms of what's for sure booked, uh, we will be at the Altona Sunflower Festival this summer. 
And uh, we have a two-week course uh, that the university will be offering uh, in May, first two weeks in May. It's a, called the Manitoba Food History Truck Course. First week, mm-hmm. students are here on campus learning about food safety and truck safety <laughs> and the processes of oral history uh, and recording and archiving and ethics. And then the second week, uh, we're partnered with Winnipeg Public Libraries, and we will be uh, parked at Sir William Stevenson Library. And students will conduct interviews with community members on the truck and then turn those interviews into story maps or podcasts uh, for publication on our project website. And then I imagine in between this and above and beyond all this, you know, the the interview, I suppose, call is always open um, as far as on the truck or off the truck. Yes, that it is. Uh, we are also hoping to uh, head out to Dauphin, ideally for the National Ukrainian Festival. But uh, there are a couple of uh, folks that we know in that region or people who have uh, approached us from that region who are interested in being interviewed and having their stories archived and then published in various ways. And that's an interesting point you bring up because, you know, if folks are interested in either um, hearing the interviews themselves or, you know, accessing some of this research and information that you're acquiring through the project, um, what are some of the avenues that folks can maybe find out more, maybe not give an interview, but maybe find out more about the interviews you are conducting and already have conducted? Well, they can certainly go on the website, but the thing in, especially when it comes to oral history, it takes time to archive because we try to emphasize that we want to, we want to make this research accessible, not immediately right now, but for 20 years from now. So in order to do that, that we have to do a lot of processing, summarizing, transcription, logging, metadata. So they are archival ready and eventually they will be accessible for researchers. We're just still in that process. And while we're doing that in the meantime, we're also creating podcasts and story maps that you can see on the website that are, you know, ways in to some of the research that we're doing. Yeah, this is an important point. Um, The problem with too many uh, oral histories in the past has been that oral historians have been very excited about the interview process, and rightly so, because that's where you're interacting with the interviewee. It's you're learning the new information but then they haven't done the necessary follow-up. And so what happens is that a lot of the archived oral history collections are are virtually unusable because it's simply a bunch of cassette tapes sitting in a box with a two-sentence description of their contents. So the only way as a researcher, you know what's actually on that tape and whether it's of relevance to you and your project is to listen to it in real time. And if it's some collection of 20, 50, 100 tapes, each an hour, two hours, three hours long, Mm -hmm. no one has the time for that. So they end up not being used. And it's a real disservice to the person who agreed to be interviewed and share their personal story with the intention that it was going to be archived and used for all times. Part of our project is to try and resurrect some of those, make them more accessible by doing to them what we are doing with our own interviews that we conduct. And that is, as Kent said, providing a a lot of documentation in a variety of different ways so that there are multiple entry points to the interview in the hopes that other researchers will be finding them of use and will actually use them. We already talked about the puff wheat squares and the chili burger and hot dogs, which is making me hungry, even though we're, we're miles from dinner, even in Ontario. I'd love to know, you know, another kind of favorite 
dish or interview subject that you experienced through the the food truck or just through the project in general that maybe was unexpected or just was absolutely delicious in an unexpected way but i'd i'd love to know Love to know your favorites. Well, the one that keeps me up at night. No, I did this wonderful interview with this uh, chef, also a podcaster. She does this amazing food history podcast on the Oxford Symposium, Oxtails. Name's Anna uh, Sigrether. She uh, did a dish on the truck using lamb's quarters, which is a wild edible. It, it opened the floodgates on uh, bioregionalism and util- utilizing wild edibles and the aspects of that and like how it's becoming uh, really trendy, but also, you know, it has a lot of history and, and traditional history that has to be considered. So that one is just this endless research uh, cycle that I'm in, constantly reading more and more about uh, bioregionalism and um, wild edibles throughout the centuries. <laughs> Do not understand how we're eating, uh, you know, kale over lamb's quarters. They t- it tastes like tangy spinach. It's incredible. But it was one of those things that was very unexpected and being like, wow, we have this weed that's growing everywhere and it it's been it was edible throughout human history and then we're not we're not eating it anymore. Again, it's one of those unexpected things that you do in the course of interviewing and then all of a sudden just throws you for a loop and then you just uh you're down the rabbit hole in the research aspects. So Okay, so I did have to look this plant up. Lamb's quarters, which is also known as pigweed, lovely name, seems to be basically found everywhere and is often treated just as a weed. But as Kent was saying, it is completely edible. It's actually related, if you can believe it, to quinoa, of all things. Communities all over the world eat it in various ways, from India to Africa to Australia. And it's certainly nothing recent as far as the human diet. Archaeologists have discovered evidence that suggests that both the Romans and the Vikings ate the stuff. It may have been a part of human diets since the Iron Age, depending on where you're looking. So there you go. Lamb's quarters. Who knew? Uh, and we, we just did uh, a month or so ago an interview with Chef Stephen Watson in his kitchens at Commonwealth College. And that, I guess, is one that stands out for me. Um, the food was delicious, obviously. <laughs> it was interesting because he, he, he made me think of things in a new way. He's a, an indigenous chef, and his his, uh, his focus, uh, he said, was to try and imagine how would indigenous cooking have developed if colonialism hadn't intervened and disrupted that process. So in the same way that French cooking has evolved over multiple centuries, you know, and moved away from the heavy sauces of a couple centuries ago, you know, how would indigenous cooking look like today? Granted, there's, you know, a diversity of indigenous groups, but his point was too often what's happening is an attempt to resurrect pre-contact foods uh, as, as some sort of, you know, historical exercise, but that doesn't really necessarily fit with contemporary tastes of many people, including many indigenous people. And so he wanted to see what if there was a, you know, a high-end indigenous food culture in the same way that so many other cultures around the globe have a high-end food culture, what would that look like? That was a, that was a, an interview that I found made me look at indigenous food in new ways. And did he did he prepare a dish in conjunction with the interview? It was uh, these slow braised um, cuts of bison, 
uh, with a, a sauce that he had thickened not as the, with you know flour, but by simply reducing liters of stock down to milliliters of stock to achieve the same effect without flour. Uh, he had um, roasted potatoes and duck fat, uh, and then he had roasted as well some parsnips in such a way that they actually tasted like dessert. Yeah. They were candied and sweet and yet without the use of any actual sugar or honey. That that sounds delicious. <laughs> it was. You missed out. It was tasty. <laughs> if anyone out there uh, identifies as a Manitoban, uh, and we don't I, we don't define that for people. We let them define themselves. But if you identify as a Manitoban, and there is some and you, and there's some aspect of food production or food retail or food consumption that you think you have a story about that you would like to share, please do visit our website, manitobafoodhistory.ca, and uh, let us know whether you're uh, interested in being interviewed. Mm -hmm. As you heard, if you find yourself in Manitoba this spring or summer, check out where the Manitoba Food History Project food truck is. And maybe, if you are a Manitoban, even consider contributing a recipe or dish yourself. You can find out more about the project at manitobafoodhistory.ca. On their website, you can also see where the truck has already been, and some of the research Janice, Kent, and the rest of the team has been working on. And as Kent mentioned, the project even has its own podcast, called Preserves. Check out all of their episodes, one of which includes that great story about Manitoba chili cheeseburgers. You can also find all these links through our website at thefeastpodcast.org, including CBC's recipe for the iconic prairie puffed wheat squares. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with sound mixing by Mike Port. A huge thank you to Janice Thiessen and Kent Davies from the University of Winnipeg for speaking with me about the Manitoba Food History Project, and as well to their co-collaborator, Kimberly Moore. As always, you can connect with us on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at feast underscore podcast. You can also help support the show, get a fabulous Feast t-shirt, and a shout out on an upcoming episode by visiting our Patreon page or on our website's donate page. Did you make puffed wheat squares? How about Romulan Ale from last week? We'd love to hear about it. Get in touch with us on any platform you prefer. We're probably there already. And if we're not, drop us a line at thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org. And that's it for us this week. Join us again as we explore another meal that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.